0: Good morning, brothers and sisters. <laughs> we'll begin the morning together, approaching God's Word uh, with prayer, and we'll continue in our, our mini-series on the book of Malachi. Let's pray. Father God, we uh, thank you for the invitation to come into your presence today as your new covenant people. We thank you, Lord God, for the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ made once and for all, allowing us to come before your, your throne boldly. God, we pray that uh, this morning would be about standing in reverent awe of you, about worshiping you, about offering to you um, song and our lives. God, we pray that, that as a church, what we would be bringing before you today would be a fragrant offering. We ask that if there is anything that impedes our relationship with you, Lord God, that that would be um, taken before your throne of grace and washed away by the blood of your Son, Jesus. We pray that anything that keeps us from focusing on you and from honoring you would be um, set aside, Lord God. Your grace is sufficient. We ask for your Holy Spirit to fill us as we draw near to your word this morning, that we would be corrected by it, that we would learn through it, and that we would meditate upon it. In Jesus' name. Amen. We are in Malachi chapter 2. We're uh, going through the third of the accusations that God is bringing against um, his, his people. And we find this in the context of addressing their failure to keep covenant, the failure of God's people to honor their, their covenant. And This is going to require us to do a little bit of research. One of the things that I uh, enjoyed about teaching high school Bible in Honduras was um, helping students understand the biblical timeline. If you don't understand your biblical timeline, it's easy to think that there's a lot of repetition and it sounds like you're seeing the same things over and over again. But if you understand the chronology that's going on, it's remarkable to see God's story of redemption unfolding. And so we're going to begin our Malachi study in Deuteronomy. We're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 31, and and the reason this is unique for us to see is because throughout God's redemptive history, we see that God's sovereignty, that God's eternality allows us to understand a lot of things before they even happen. As we look at this particular text, what we're going to see is, going to Malachi, a divine I told you so. Right? All of this is laid out in advance, and God has explained what's going to happen. So we find ourselves in Deuteronomy chapter 31, and I'm going to start at verse 14. We are in the process of seeing the baton handed from Moses to Joshua. And so God is going to allow Moses one last opportunity to address his covenant people and lay out for them his promises and the guarantee that they're going to botch it up. So here we go. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting, that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. And the Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. It's the presence of God manifested. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, Then this people will rise and whore after foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done. Because they have turned to other gods. Now, therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths, that they, this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them, and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today, before I brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. And the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous, for I, will, I shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. And when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death... Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. All this told in advance. God speaks it to Moses God conveys that through Moses to His covenant people and says, "This is what you're going to do." How heavy are those words? How heavy are those words? And you know, I can't think, but I can't help but think of of Peter, who is told by Jesus, "You're going to deny me." And Peter says, "No, no, 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 no." And and the hurt that Moses must have felt, knowing that the people were going to fall so short of this covenant. God for foreshadowed that and made that perfectly clear. We find ourselves in this third accusation now in the book of Malachi. We've fast-forwarded, and we're continuing our story, we're seeing in this third charge God accusing his people of falling short of their covenant, not only with him, but also with their spouse. He brings into, into play the context that is um, the, the covenants between themselves as a nation and between them and their spouses Because that is a reflection of, a shadow of, his covenant with his people. There's very many parallels that we'll see in the text today. Malachi condemns this marriage to um, idolaters. And he talks about how he's um, witnessing them failing to live up to their covenant. Let's look together at Malachi chapter 2. We're going to read 10 through 16 today. Have we all not one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. So guard yourselves in spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in spirit, and do not be faithless. The uh, beginning of this particular charge that God brings has the repetition of the word one, and that's very significant. He says, have we all not one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? This is really important because we've mentioned that during the the time of the Persians, the decree of Cyrus and the people being allowed to go back to their places of origin, that policy was enacted, a policy of pluralism. Everybody's fine to have their own God, their own religion, as long as you live under this Persian jurisdiction and you still pay your taxes, Whatever religion you want is good. The people of Judah are allowed to go back to their little province and to resume a life of relative normalcy. But all around them, you have the Moabites and you've got um, different tribal uh, groups um, that are going back, that are back in their places, and they are all polytheists. What they've learned in their time under Babylonian rule and their time under Persian rule is this idea of polytheism. So as they go back to Judah again, yes, they rebuild their temple. Yes, they take on some of the traditions of their fathers, but they're also still very much absorbed in the polytheism of the world around them. And so God speaks to his covenant people and says, I've made you one people with one God. Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? The profaning of the covenant of the fathers points right back to the text that we started with in Deuteronomy chapter 31. God said, you're going to profane the covenant. You're going to get into this land that's flowing with milk and honey, right? And now think about this. Not only did God fulfill his promise to take them into the promised land the first time under Joshua's leadership, but now he's been faithful to fulfill his promise in the book of Jeremiah, taking them back to the promised land yet again. Right? Temple 2.0. They're back in the promised land. And guess what? The same mistake again. The same mistake again. Verse 11, Malachi is kind of building on this. The the first uh, portion of verse 10, he says, Why are we faithless to one another? And this might be pointing to um, a a bit of injustice or a bit of conflict that exists within how the people of Judah are treating, treating one another. But in verse 12, he gets even more specific and he says, This covenant faithlessness, betrayal, if you will, is really clear in the patterns of marriage that are happening. He says, Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. The word abomination is an interesting one. It's not one we use in our regular vocabulary very often, but it comes up several times in the book of Malachi. It comes up often in the book of Jeremiah as well. And interestingly enough, if you look for the word abomination, it often comes up in the context of the temple of the Lord. Part of what um, I hope to be able to to draw our, our focus to this morning is that when we come into God's sanctuary, when we come into his temple, there are things that impede us from doing what we're here to do. And we have to be very careful of those things. We can come to church, and it's nothing more than a ritual without having our right relationship with God. And so that's what this is about. He says, abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. And I want to look at the word abomination. The definition is something that causes disgust or hatred. Something that causes disgust or hatred. With that said, it ought not be hard for us to identify things that would cause that would be an abomination before the Lord. You can drive down Claremont Mesa and look at a few billboards and find a whole list of abominations, right? God's abominations, what he describes as abomination, often have to do with idolatry and with adultery. Idolatry and adultery. Those aren't hard to find on Claremont Mesa. (laughs) What we see here is God bringing this word, abomination, and says, what's been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem is an abomination. Let's look at a couple of cases where we, we find this word. One is in Isaiah chapter 1. We've looked at this text a couple of times throughout our studies, and I, and I love it because of the parallelisms between what we see in Malachi and what we see in Isaiah. Again, looking at our timeline, we know that Isaiah was a prophet before the temple was destroyed, before they were taken into Babylon, and yet the accusations that God brings against his people are very much the same. Isaiah chapter 1. God talks about their worship and how it is unacceptable to him. He says in verse 11 of Isaiah 1, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense incense is an abomination to me. The incense is what they were supposed to bring, right? The frankincense, this is what they were supposed to be burning in the sanctuary. But God says, This causes for me hatred and disgust. Why? Because it's hypocritical. They bring all these sacrifices, but yet their conduct outside of the temple is so contrary, is so contradictory, that it causes a repulse for God. And he goes on to say, New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. There's a barrier to this worship that was happening in the temple in Isaiah's day. Stop bringing offerings, stop burning incense, just stop. The hypocrisy of their worship because of their failure to keep covenant. Jeremiah chapter 33, another favorite text a couple years back, was given the opportunity to share from this text is at the tail end of the portion where Jeremiah buys the land. Jeremiah was told to acquire this property and buy it in the middle of uncertain times. And as he does that, he gets to the end of doing the transaction and he has a little bit of buyer's remorse and he cries out to the Lord and says, but why have you told me to do this? This land is about to be conquered by the Babylonians. No one's even gonna be living here. What's the deal? And God recaps for Jeremiah and says, You're absolutely right. And do you know why this is going to be such a bad time? And he recounts the charges for them. And here we see the word abomination yet again. Jeremiah chapter 33, at verse 32. I'll start at 31. This city, Jerusalem, has aroused my anger and wrath from the day that it was built to this day, so that I will remove it from my sight because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Notice that includes pretty much everyone. He calls out the priests, and remember the book of Malachi is very much focused on the priesthood. But in the time of Jeremiah, he calls out everyone and it says, they have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They have set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter my mind, that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. The abomination, the thing that causes disgust and hatred, is idolatry. So again, Jeremiah echoes that same message. Jerusalem is going to pay a heavy consequence for this hypocrisy for this double standard sure enough we find ourselves in the book of malachi and all of this is being repeated yet again they've come back out of captivity they've rebuilt the temple and yet there it is again abomination this thing that causes such strong emotion in god is present yet again It's worth mentioning the term abomination comes up in the New Testament as well, and um, we've learned through Pastor John's teaching, Matthew 24, um, verses 15 and on, the abomination that causes desolation. Jesus points ahead to the sacrifice that was made improperly in Herod's temple. And as a result, there was um, a a great time of of tribulation, and the, the temple was ultimately destroyed, and we see that term abomination again. So it's not usually in our vocabulary, but what we're looking for here and what we're trying to understand is what brings God this great hatred and disgust when his covenant people don't live in a manner that's worthy of their calling. We also saw um, in our study last week that the priest's duty was to separate what was holy and what was mundane. What's holy and, and what's profane. Be able to make that distinction. And here again, we're not seeing that distinction. Let's look at verse 11 again, 11 and 12 together. It says, Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is perhaps a little hard to see, but sometimes when we're studying God's word, it's helpful to compare uh, translations. And this verse 11 is, um, is interesting to compare a bit in, in terms of the, the versions. But what we understand here is that the accusation that God is bringing against his people is that they're marrying the daughters of a foreign God. Now, this doesn't mean that there's a prohibition um, about interracial marriages, right? What we're seeing here is that the people as they have embraced pluralism, as they try to conform to the nations living around them, they have made some decisions that go against God's instructions for his people about who they should have association with, particularly in the context of marriage. Nehemiah chapter 13 and Ezra chapter 9 talk about what's happening in post-exilic Judah. They're all picking wives for their sons, and they're picking their wives based on who has affluence, who has beauty, instead of looking at who is a follower of Yahweh. This is a good um, segue for us to think about in terms of application. For those of us who are parenting young people, it's really, really important that we help them understand this idea of being equally yoked. God is jealous for the devotion of his children, And one of the fastest ways to send our kids off in a different direction, not following after the Lord, is the person that they choose as their life companion. We ought to be encouraging and being mindful that our sons and daughters ought to be looking within the community of faith for their future spouse. We ought to pray for that and protect that. God says to his people, Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So the, the, the message here that Malachi is conveying, and that God is conveying through Malachi, is that there ought to be a jealousy within the, the hearts of the people of Israel that they marry within their own community. Now verse 13, And this second thing you do, You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. This is a a big concern for the people of Israel. We're doing all the right things, but we're not seeing God's blessing. We're not seeing God's hand of favor as we ought All these other nations are popping up again, right? The Edomites, who were supposed to have been completely destroyed, have kind of recolonized in a different part. They're now near neighbors. All these other nations that are around them um, are beginning to see some restructuring. The people of Israel now have their temple again. They're back, and they're expecting the glory days that their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents experienced. and they're seeing none of that. We're going to the temple again? We're doing all the things that we're supposed to do, Guy says, No, you are not keeping covenant. You are not honoring God. You are doing one thing during the week and another when you come waltzing into the temple. That cannot be. This is a direct affront to their hypocrisy. And being sincere, don't we often do that? We're tithing, we're going to church, we're listening to music that honors God. We're doing all these things, but yet we still have adversity. It's not a, a formula that you do all these things and God shows this particular type of blessing, and so the people of Israel are now discouraged. God expects there to be a covenant community in order for us to have all of the blessings of that covenant relationship with him. We're talking about this idea that we have a a relationship with God that's vertical, right? But God has created us as people to understand the covenant with him through horizontal relationships. That's why this text begins with, don't we all have one father? Isn't one God our creator? Right, for the people of Israel, that's his covenant nation of Israel. For us as new covenant believers, this one body... Is the church of Jesus Christ? This one body is better understood by seeing a collection of husband and wife, a collection of believers that have one father. And if anything stands in in the way of those horizontal relationships, it affects the vertical relationship. Matthew chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus teaches clearly this idea that before we can come into the sanctuary of the Lord and offer a sacrifice, we have to have our horizontal relationships right. Matthew chapter, 23, uh, chapter 5 verse 23 says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. Pretty clear. But God goes one step further and says, I'm not just talking about this national type of relationship, I'm also talking about the spouse relationship. Those acts of worship are not acceptable unless you've cleared the air with your spouse. Now, um, I'm thankful to say that my wife and I have grown a little bit immaturity over the years, but if I look back at our days of having smaller children than we have now, and Sunday mornings, statistically speaking, I can tell you that most of our arguments transpired on Sunday mornings right about the time we got ready for church. Does anyone else notice that? I, I don't know if there's any like empirical study, right? But there, there's something that is very spiritual in nature about preparing our hearts to go to God's house. And there is an adversary that, of course, wants to impede that, right? So good advice, clear it up in the parking lot before you come in, right? The Lord says clearly, do not let the sun go down on your anger. We can't possibly come in and honor God with our worship, with our our awe standing before him if there's conflict with our spouse or with our brother and sister in Christ. We have to resolve that verse 14 Malachi chapter 2 But you say why does he not because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless though she is your companion and your wife by covenant I've underlined this word witness a couple of times and if you notice in Deuteronomy chapter 31 we see that word witness there too God says Moses write this song because you're going to teach the song to the Israelites and all of their descendants, and the song will be a witness against them. And then he says, write it down in the book of the law and put the book of the law next to the Ark of the Covenant, the Levites, remember? The Levites were supposed to put it there. That this will be a witness against them. Curiously enough, we get to the book of Nehemiah again, and the book of the law is read again. That same book of the law. And I, well, Scripture tells us about certain artifacts that were removed from the temple by the Babylonians, those artifacts were taken off to Babylon. And when the people of Israel were allowed to go back, those artifacts, golden bowls, bronze, uh, censers, things like that, were allowed to go back. The book of the law would have been among those things. And in the time of Nehemiah, in the time of Ezra, that book of the law is read again. And how does God describe that book of the law? A witness against them. While they wept when they heard it, it was simply because They were confronted with this reality. They were unable to keep their covenant with the Lord and with one another. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. This idea of witness is is very significant because it is God who says he's bringing charges against them. Marriage is something that's holy. It is something that is done before God and it is a commitment that God is witnessing Curiously enough, um, in Honduras, the evangelical church, as we are, has no authority to marry um, couples. That is a function that is reserved for the Catholic church or the state. So if you are an evangelical Christian, you actually have to get married twice. You get married once uh, with your evangelical pastor, which is just a formality, has no legal bearing, and then you have to go to the justice of the peace in order for that to be identified. And so on one particular occasion, uh, Jennifer and I were invited to go and be a witness to this ceremony. And only four other people were allowed to go. So it's a very small group. It's not like a big wedding. And so we were able to go and we were able to witness. And one of the things that we had to do was sign that we were witnessing this particular ceremony. And a couple of years go by and we see that couple going through a hard time in their marriage. And we were able to say, hey, you know what? We were with you when you signed on the dotted line. We were there and we observed those vows being exchanged. And that carries some weight, right? And that carries an awful lot of weight before the eyes of our holy and sovereign and loving God. He says, I was the witness between you and your wife of, the wife of your youth. And he says, you have been faithless, though she is the companion and the wife, your wife by covenant. The oneness of this marriage has been violated. And it's really important for us to understand that when that happens, that horizontal relationship is interfered with, it affects that vertical relationship with God. Again, I love the fact that the, um, God's word ties us all together in terms of what we're learning in First Peter where the ladies are studying right now, there's a verse that is crystal clear in explaining this reality. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Peter explains, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, not getting along well with your wife will affect your prayer life. Have any of us ever experienced that, men? How about wives? When there's conflict, when there's dissension in the family, does that not affect our ability to communicate with God? Those relationships are designed to help us better understand the covenant relationship that he desires to have with us. Before we come and worship, set the offering aside and fix the challenge we have with our brother or sister. Before we come before the Lord in prayer, go to our spouse and ask for forgiveness. Verse 15 is an interesting one. We're going to do the uh, parallel translations again here. Verse 15. So this particular verse in the book of Malachi is really difficult for translators. It has a lot of different um Understandings. There's the word one, and we're not sure what modifies what. So let me read it for you first in ESV, and then in NASB. ESV says, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Verse 15 in NASB sounds a bit different. It says, But not one of you who has done so... Has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Notice the phrase there about godly offspring is translated a little differently. So for those of you who want to have the big families, you can go ahead and stick with the ESV. It does make that clear, right? He wants lots of offspring. Uh, But Interestingly enough, in the NASB, it looks like verse 15 is pointing back to 14, and it says, Any of you who have done this with divorcing the wife of your youth, there's not a remnant of my spirit in you. Right? He's talking about the relationship in, in that translation between his covenant relationship and the covenant relationship between a man and a wife. We can't come before God if we have this issue of divorce or adultery. In our midst. Either way you interpret it, the message is the same. Don't deal treacherously with the wife of your youth. Honor her. Back to Malachi chapter two, verse fifteen. The tail end of fifteen says, "So guard yourselves in spirit. Let none of you let, let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord God of Israel, covers his garment with violence." Says the Lord of Hosts, so guard yourselves in spirit and do not be faithless. This particular verse is really fascinating to me. This idea of covering your garment with violence—what does that figure of speech really mean? And so, digging in a little bit, I want to look at the word garment with you. I think it's it's fascinating to see because the idea of garment throughout the Bible is talking about um, our conduct or our position before the Lord. So we're seeing this relationship issue horizontally and this relationship with God vertically. We also need to understand that the idea of garment talks about our standing or our position before God. Let's look at a couple of examples together. In Genesis chapter 35, we see God talking with Jacob. And we see some of the covenant of Jacob being discussed here. 35 verse 2, starting at verse 1 rather, it says, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were there, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may... Make there an altar to God. Interesting, because if we look at that, Jacob is being called out of polytheism, right? And he's being told to go to Bethel, which we know is the place where God establishes his house, right? And one of the first things that Jacob says to his household is, purify yourselves and change your clothes. Change your garments. Exodus chapter 19, beginning at verse 10. Then the Lord says, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down from Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. They're told to go and change their garments to, to have this encounter with God. To me, one of the most amazing scriptures that I came across in looking at about this garment is in Matthew chapter 22." We see Jesus giving a parable and laying out this idea of a wedding feast. Interesting, we now have Christ come, we have the new covenant, and he goes back to this old covenant parallel of marriage and covenant. And, and look what he says here as he's talking about this wedding feast. Matthew 22, verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness, into the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For there are many called, but few are chosen. And one more old Testament text that I want to look at with you with regards to this idea of, of garments is in the book of Zechariah. A precious and amazing foreshadowing of the new covenant. We have Joshua, the high priest. And we have this vision of the high priest. And he's clothed how? Filthy garments. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan, The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And the Lord said to him, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by and the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge over my courts, charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you. For they are the men who are assigned. And behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone... With seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. In this vision, we see the filthy garments, that of of sin, that of something that is impeding the relationship, the access to go before God. And God changes his clothes, right? And we see this in the New Covenant. We see this in the book of Revelation where it's talked about where the saints are given white clothes. Their sins are taken away and we are cleansed and we understand that that's pointing us to Christ. And so when we see this text in Malachi and it says you've clothed yourselves with violence, we need to understand that that means that it's talking about this position that we have before the Lord, this condition of being sinful and unclean. And so God now allows us to, through Christ, change those clothes. Paul talks repeatedly, put on Christ. Put on Christ. This seems like a tough place to end our, our examination of Malachi because it doesn't end on such a great no, right? It ends with verse 10. So guard yourselves in spirit and do not be faithless. If we've learned anything in looking at this redemptive history thing, we've seen the people of Israel continually blow it, continually make the same pattern of sin over and over again. So what could we possibly learn from this? Is it going to happen again? Yeah. Malachi ends the Old Testament and there's this 400 years of silence where God just says, look, you're not listening to me anyway. I have nothing to say. We come to ourselves as New Covenant believers and we recognize that there are many parts of the law, all of the law, right, that stands as a witness against us because we are incapable of meeting that requirement. Which is why the book of Malachi bundles so nicely with the book of Hebrews. Right? If you're going to study two books together, I can't think of a better book to accompany it. And so we're going to end today in the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. We see that, as the people of Israel failed time and time again at keeping their covenant, at honoring God through their marriages, through their relationships, through their obedience, through all of those things, it became necessary for Christ to put into effect a different covenant. Here we have in the book of Hebrews one of the longest Old Testament quotes. This is that of the new covenant. Hebrews chapter eight, starting at verse one. Now, the point in which we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent of the Lord. In the true tent of the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. This idea of marriage, brothers and sisters, is a shadow, a copy, that is pointing us to the heavenly thing. It is something that is here and now to help us understand the not yet. They serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds faults with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand out of the land of Egypt for they did not continue in my covenant and so I showed no concern for them declares the lord for this is the covenant that i will make with the house of israel after those days declares the lord i will put my laws into their mind and i will write them on their hearts and i will be their god and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor each one his brother saying know the lord for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Praise God for that. The main idea of the book of Malachi is their continual failure to keep covenant, their continual failure needed a solution. And the solution was not another reform. The solution was God himself coming and enacting a better covenant. For if that covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. But praise God, we are under a new covenant. We have been given the opportunity to come and offer sacrifices and lift up the incense of our prayers that will be acceptable to him because he is our great high priest. Father God, we come before you and we confess to you that we fall short of managing our earthly relationships in a way that honors you. God, we ask that you would um, intervene in our relationships with one another, that we would um, be a church that is united as we have one Father and one Savior, one Redeemer. We ask in our marriages too, Lord God, that there would be restoration where that needs to happen. We ask for our young people, Um, who are not yet at a stage in their life to to be married, that you would protect them, that you would watch over them, and that you would prepare even now for them, God-fearing spouses. You do desire a godly offspring, and we pray that our young people would honor you with those decisions. Lord God, we also um, thank you and praise you joyfully that while we see what can be discouraging repeating of sin, not only in, in your word, but also in our own lives, that you ultimately have broken that cycle. You have broken that curse, Lord God, by sending your son Jesus, the only perfect sacrifice to die on our behalf. We thank you and praise you and we ask that you would allow us to live as redeemed people, that you would allow our relationships to be different from that of an unbelieving world so that others might see you in us and desire to be a part of this people. We thank you and praise you in your name. Amen.